We're going to continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 57. And remember this book because we've been a very long time in the book. The book is basically broken down into two sections, the judgment of God and the comfort of God. And as we have been going through this amazing book, we learned about Judah prophecies and foreign prophecies and warning and promises. We looked at a historical uh, section, redemption promise, redemption provided. And we're now coming to that part of the book where we learn about redemption realized. And this evening, as we look at chapter 57, we're going to look at God's care for the righteous. So I'm going to begin by reading a few verses of Isaiah chapter 57, beginning in verse 1, where it says, The righteous perishes, and no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each walking in his uprightness. Isaiah has issued a message to the unrighteous leaders. Remember in chapter 56, they will be judged. The book, the Bible, and particularly Isaiah, is filled with promises and filled with warnings. And many people read the promises and rejoice, but they fail to heed the warnings. It's like looking at a bottle of aspirin or some other pain reliever and remember what the promise of a pain reliever holds out for you. I'm going to make your headache go away. I'm going to make your backache go away. I'm going to make your pain and sorrows go away. But we've missed the warning label. If you eat the whole bottle like candy, you could die. And so it's important that we understand the promises And it's important that we understand the warnings. In chapter 56, Isaiah warned the false leaders that they would be judged, remember, devoured by beasts. We know that that's a reference to the invading armies of Assyria. Now the prophet will issue a warning to those who are addicted to the occult, to the supernatural, those who seek a supernatural solution to their problems outside of the revelation of the Bible. He calls them prostitutes and adulterers in in verses 3 through 14. And then in this chapter, he'll give a message to the proud and to the greedy. It's a warning. And the warning is basically, beware, for only God is high and lifted up. He alone is the one who inhabits eternity. He is the only one who is deserving of praise and honor. So the Bible will point us to the character of God, to the message of Jesus, in order to deal with our struggle, in order to deal with our sin, in order to deal with our wickedness and distorted sense of justice. In chapter 57, we see the wickedness of the children of Judah in verses 3 and 4. They're called the offspring of prostitutes and the children of sinners and liars. And then in chapter 57 and verses 5 through 11, it will describe their worship. They build and worship gods and goddesses of stones 
because they love them, but in spite of their wickedness, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their disobedience, God loves them and wants to save them and that there's still hope. And when we read these things, it should give you a sense of hope. You mean in my wickedness? In my rebellion, in my stupidity, in my stubbornness, God's still willing to deal with me? Yeah. In the end, God has a severe warning to the proud and to the greedy that He alone inhabits eternity. He alone is the perfection of holiness. He is the one and only true and living God. Now, the reason why this becomes important Because He is the one and the true and living God, God insists. No, that's the wrong word. God demands that people acknowledge Him as the true and the living God. And that they obey Him. And that they live lives consistent with His character and the revelation of Jesus. And so we see at the beginning of chapter 57 that the righteous become an endangered species. Look at verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into rest. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. The idea being in Isaiah's day, all of a sudden, those who honored God, all those who obeyed God, all those who submitted to God, they became fewer and fewer and fewer because when you have a world that's filled with wickedness and unrighteousness and rebellion, guess what? Those who love God, cooperate with God, submit to God, become less and less popular. You really can't kill the righteous. You can deliver them from further evil and abuse. You'll remember that before Noah's flood, there was a man named Enoch, and he walked with God, and then God took him. We sometimes wonder, if God is such a good God, then why does he allow persecution? Why does he allow poor people in the Sudan to be murdered? Why does he allow Eastern European Christians to be killed? Why does he allow Chinese Christians to be put to death? And we sometimes forget that the reason is that the righteous is taken away from evil, that you can't really kill the righteous. All you can do do is deliver them from the current evil circumstance and usher them into the presence of God. This has been true in every generation. There was a Christian leader named Polycarp. He was a bishop in an early church. And he was brought before the emperor of Rome. And the Roman emperor said, Polycarp, you have to stop talking about Jesus. You're driving people nuts. He goes, if you don't stop it, I'm going to banish you from the kingdom. And Polycarp says, Jesus is my king and the whole world is belongs to him. So you can't send me anywhere that I won't love him and honor him and serve him. And then the emperor says, then I'm going to kill you. And he says, oh, thank you. Thank you for being the instrument which God has deemed to use in order to usher me into the presence of Jesus Christ. That attitude is really not the same today. In Isaiah's day, 
the righteous may have been persecuted, imprisoned, killed, or disappeared. Think about what happens in a world where the righteous, where the innocent, aren't valued, aren't recognized, aren't honored, aren't respected. Well, guess what? In that kind of a civilization that gets more and more wicked, what it does is it becomes an invitation to judgment. We shouldn't be shocked or dismayed when the righteous are taken or or persecuted or abused. Remember, the Bible tells us those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. To be overlooked, to be despised, to be rejected, to be persecuted isn't a disaster. For the Christian, there's really only one disaster. And that's to lose your integrity before God. It's better to die in obedience than to live in disobedience. And so, it says in verse 3, a warning to addicts and idolaters and to those who love the occult, the supernatural. The Lord issues an invitation, but come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks? The next thing that Isaiah speaks of is the spiritual adultery of the people of God and their contempt for the true and the living God. So God's people wanted something new, something modern, something sexy, something exciting. They flirted with false gods, and all this talk about God warning them seemed like insincere warnings of an overly protective parent promising punishment, but never really making good on the promise. Now, unless you start to behave, I'm going to spank you. Well, the next time I really am going to spank you. The next time I really am going to punish you. They saw the warnings of God as being some sort of joke. They had no idea that the people of God became attracted to paganism. And that no matter how foolish, no matter how degrading, no matter how exhausting the foolishness was, they went deeper and deeper. You've got to understand something. In 720 B.C., when the armies of Assyria are coming and they had invaded the north, they had taken them, and then the the south, Judah and Jerusalem, were in relative safety. But as they were in relative safety, they began to compromise and become involved in paganism. And so when it says, but come here, it's almost like a summons. I don't know if you've ever been called to jury duty. But if you've ever been called to jury duty, the municipality will call you and say, you are hereby ordered to appear as a juror on such and such a day, and you are compelled by law to appear under penalty of law. Which means if you don't show up, guess what will happen? You could be found in contempt of court and and you could be punished. And so here, when the Lord says, but come here, he's issuing a summons because they're going to have to listen to what God says. God charges 
the people with being guilty of loving sorcery and loving idolatry and calls them the offspring of, of adulterers and harlots. He says in verse 4, Whom do you ridicule and stick out the tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, offspring, and falsehood? What was the terrible evil? Well, here's what they were doing. They were sticking out the, their tongue. The idea is that they're mocking the righteous. In other words, it wasn't good enough for them to rebel against God, to resist God, to refuse God. They began to make fun of everyone who decided that they would obey God and submit to God. It says, inflaming themselves, or inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys, under clefts of the rocks. People addicted to false worship were guilty, first of all, of idolatry, and then sorcery. Now, in Isaiah's day, worship centers would sprout up all around Judah and Jerusalem. That means that people, because they walked everywhere they went, you didn't have to go far before you saw little handmade altars. And for those of you who went to Israel with me, there were, there were um, plenty of archaeological ruins of tables and altars and false gods and false idols. And so they worshipped fertility gods. As a matter of fact, when we went to the city of David, there was a little display of some Azura or some fertility gods and goddesses. The people worshipped them. Here's what they believed. They claimed that, that they blessed the earth. In other words, it was the fertility gods that would cause growth and fruitfulness, that would cause crop production or, or grain increases. The basic belief of the fertility cults was that the sexual act pleased the gods of fertility. And so this became a way of securing the favor of the fertility gods. It was their belief in the ancient world that through the sexual experience, the priests and the priestess were actually helping people. They believed that they were securing the favor of the so-called gods. In fact, what it turned out to be was a type of religious prostitution. And as the verse says, they became inflamed with lust and they began to completely ignore the Bible's warnings against adultery and prostitution. They followed religions that prompted violence and that eventually led to human sacrifice. When it, when it says in verse 3, but come here, you sons of the sorceress. You offspring of the adulterer. He's talking about the generation that abandons God. And then in verse 5, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys. The slaying of the children in the valleys became an illusion, if you will, to the people who would set up altars to the god Molech. Where the Gihon and the Hinnom valleys meet, the ancient peoples in about the 7th century B.C. would set up altars. And then on the altars of stone, they would have fiery altars of, of brass. And on the brass, they would take their living children and they would heat the brass up to, to, to red-hot proportions and they would literally place their children on this rack and burn them in a human sacrifice to their God. And you might be thinking, how could a mother or a father, how could anyone in their right mind do such a thing? As a matter of fact, 
with archaeological um, with with the archaeology that's been done in that region from that time, they have found ancient homes where they have found the bones of children inside of jars that have been walled up into the side of the house. And you might be thinking, how, how could they do that? Well, the reason why they could do that is because they believed that that was the kind of violence and sacrifice that would satisfy the gods, that the gods were capricious and that you had to make enormous sacrifices in order to have their favor. And you might be thinking, well, that's awful. Well, it is awful. But it's not so different from what we do. People make enormous sacrifices, their children, in order to satisfy themselves. They'll neglect them or they'll ignore them. And some people will even kill them in what we call the modern holocaust of abortion. And in verse 6, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. The idea being that they would go to the Kidron and they would pick out smooth rocks from where the water flowed. And from these smooth rocks, they would create idols. They, they are your lot, it says in verse 6. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You've offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? And so the Lord uses the imagery of passion and marital fidelity to describe his relationship with his people. That God is a jealous God. That he loves his people. And that this spiritual adultery is provoking him. And it says in verse 7, On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. We, we know in the ancient world that the people would find the highest mountain that they could find and it was there that they would build the temple. It was there that they would build the altar. It was there that they would, would offer the sacrifice. Now imagine in the fertility cults, that's where they would also locate the bed. And to them, that this was their act of worship. And so, like I said over and over again, the Bible describes our relationship with God like a marriage. God loves us like a jealous lover, like a man's passion for his wife. And so the prophets warned them, not just Isaiah, but also Jeremiah. The prophets warned them that don't treat God as if he is not enough. Like we need more, that we need something else to be satisfied. If we treat God as if he's not enough to satisfy us, we engage in a type of spiritual prostitution. And again, like we've said, as we sing our worship songs, Lord, you're all I need. You're all I want. You're all I need. You satisfy me. But that isn't simply true for some of you. You sing the song, but you don't really mean it because the emptiness that wells up inside of you, you bring your emptiness and your longing and you say, you know what, it's just not enough. Reading the Bible and going to church and having a relationship with God, it's just not enough. I need more. I want more to be satisfied. God doesn't satisfy me. But do you realize that when you do that, you're engaged in a type of spiritual prostitution? Just like the wife who's, who says to her husband, you're not enough. I 
need something more. I need someone more. Here's the idea. We bring our emptiness. We bring our longing. We bring our craving. We bring all of those things that we think that we need in order to satisfy us to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We sometimes bring our emptiness and looking to what looks like Christ, but it's only a spiritual substitute. I need religion. I need candles. I need a statue. I need a pilgrimage. When we were in Israel, one of the, the, the things that we did is we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is allegedly the place where the burial tomb of Jesus is. And it was a circus. People were jammed in, and, and the place that was supposed to be the sepulcher was covered with marble, and people were taking candles and relics, and they were shaking, and they were putting them on this, and they were kissing it as if that somehow, magically, the place where Jesus was placed in burial would somehow impart magical powers to religious relics. But we sometimes think exactly that same way. It's sort of like magical thinking. Ray Ortland writes, quote, It's why the most important thing about us is our love for Christ, our openness to Him alone. It's why our relationship is not control, but surrender. The way Christians act in relationship is we don't control God. We don't manipulate God. We don't try to fool God or... or suggest to God that he do certain things in order for us to get our way, but the way that we have a relationship with God is we surrender to him. We surrender our mind and our heart and our will. In other words, real relationship and friendship with God isn't you trying to manipulate God, but rather it's you surrendering to the plan and the purpose and the love and the friendship and the relationship that he has for you. Portland writes, it's a constant temptation to spread our love around and sacrifice to other gods because something in our hearts doesn't believe that he alone is enough to thrill us forever. But we are the ones. Even when we treat him so poorly, we are the ones whom he still invites to enter in and find out what his goodness is really worth. Do you understand what, what Orland is saying? That even when we play the role of the harlot, even when we engage in spiritual adultery, even when we think and feel like he's not enough, he extends grace and forgiveness and mercy. And a willingness to prove that he is enough. And look what it says in verse 8. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me, and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. L listen to how graphic this is. Remember I talked about this. This is... These are images of passion and intimacy. Have you ever heard someone say, 
You know, I don't care what goes on behind closed doors. Here, Isaiah says, God cares what goes on behind closed doors because the children of Judah and Jerusalem would go to the temple and they would act like Jews and they would pray like Jews and they would read their Bible like Jews. But when they went into their home and they closed the door behind closed doors, they became flaming pagans. They prayed and acted just like their pagan neighbors. What does that mean for you and me? Well, how many Christians go to church and read their Bible, but behind closed doors, they go back home and they see the same filthy movies that the unbelievers see. They engage in the same filthy acts. They do exactly what the unbeliever does. That the only difference is that behind closed doors, they act like unbelievers, but then they leave those closed doors and then they go out and in this world, they're Christians. But here's the idea. God understands the hypocrisy. He sees the hypocrisy. He says, also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance. Here's the idea. They had the little gods and goddesses. They would smuggle them into their houses. These were family idols and they would worship them. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. Here's the idea that, that they would engage in lewd and lascivious conduct behind closed doors in the privacy of their own home. They kept their false gods, taking delight in their nakedness as a Hebrew expression of indecent exposure. Now, but you have to understand why they're doing this. They're doing this because they believe that if they would give themselves over to the fertility gods and goddesses, they would be blessed with a good crop. They would be given more children. They would be given a gift in their twisted and perverted and distorted thinking. They thought that they had to do this in order to survive. But isn't that exactly what some of us do? In our twisted, in our distorted views, we sometimes think that we have to compromise what the Bible teaches in order to accommodate the world in which we live. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear over and over and over again that that's not true. That God wants you to remain faithful. That He wants you to think and act differently than the unbeliever. And then in verse 9 it says, You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended into Sheol. Here in verse 9 it's a, it's an, it's a, it's an illusion, if you will, or uh, it, it, it's the idea that they're trusting in human leadership. You went to the king with ointment. In the southern part of Israel, even as we were traveling there this last couple of weeks, there were certain areas that 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 uh, produced a certain type of perfume called henna. It was such a wonderful, fragrant perfume that kings and queens all over the world wanted it. They had secret formulas. And so here the idea is that they would go to foreign kings and queens and that they would trust human leadership and human government. They would send envoys 
to these kings and queens. But here's what God is saying. When you look to them and trust them, what you are in effect doing is trusting the gods and the goddesses that they trust. So by proxy, trusting the kings was trusting the king's idols. Trusting an unbelieving king, trusting the unbeliever's army was the same as trusting the false gods that they worship, seeking the help of unbelieving kings and their gods instead of the Lord. Here's here's what he's saying. It's the same as seeking help from hell. Not, Not my words. Those are the words of Isaiah. That's what it means when it says in verse 9, and even descended to Sheol. It means the place of the dead. But here, in the context, it seems to be the place of the unrighteous dead. And in verse 10, you are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid, in verse 11, or feared? That you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart. Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? In other words, here's what what the Lord is saying. You are wearied in the length of your way. What he's saying is, everything seems to be the same, over and over and over again. Yet you did not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. The idea being, God isn't coming through to me. If God was really who he said he is, he should come through for me. In verse 11, and of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? Here's the idea. How did you come to the place where you decided that you couldn't trust me? Now, remember what we've learned over and over again in the Bible. Over and over again, there's a repetition. Do you remember it was me who called your father Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees? Do you remember it was me who brought you down to the e- Egypt and then delivered you from that hellish life? It was me who provided for you in the wilderness. It was me who took care of you over and over and over again, giving you promise after promise, promise after promise. And here's how our relationship has been working. I love you and forgive you and you rebel against me. Then I love you and forgive you again, and then you rebel against me. And then during the time of the judges, everybody does what's right in their own eye until they can't stand it anymore. They cry out to God, and he provides a deliverer. And then the people get sick and tired of the wars and the battles, and they insist in rebellion and disobedience of having a king other than God. And then Samuel, remember, says to them, you need to understand something. If you have a king, the king is going to tax you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters and your income and this and that. And as a matter of fact, your condition is going to be worse than you could have ever imagined. But I just want you to understand something. If you plead and cry and weep and beg and complain, I'll give you exactly what you want. And if you weep and cry and beg and complain, sometimes God will give you exactly 
Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? Here's, here's what he's saying. Did I somehow leave you with the impression that it doesn't matter what you think and what you do? Did I leave you with that impression? And look what it says in verse 12. I will declare your righteousness and your works for they will not profit you. The idea being your works won't save you. Your religious repetitions won't save you. In verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. You What's interesting to me when I was reading that verse, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The expression of idols doesn't appear in the original text. The translators included that because the translators thought that the collection that he's talking about is the collection of the idols that the people would keep in their home. He says, but the wind will carry them all away. But I'm, the more I read it, the more I'm convinced that the original text, apart from that, is correct. When you cry out, let your collection deliver you. What collection is he talking about? I suppose that he's not just talking about little wooden statues or stone statues statues or silver or gold statues, what he's talking about is the collection of ideas that people have in their mind to justify the way that they live. God doesn't really care. He understands that I'm only human. God doesn't really care. And in the end, he will forgive me. But what he's basically saying is there's there's really the God who reveals himself in the Bible and then there's the God of our imagination. Or the God of our expectation. Or the God that we hope is the God. The God over and over again in the Bible says, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not like you. I don't think like you. And I don't have a heart like you. But the wind will carry them all away. He says, a breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Here's the idea. God would expose their sin and he would judge them. And when that happened, God invites them to turn to their collection, whether it's a collection of ideas that stand in opposition to the reality that there's a God or to their collection of idols Warren Wiersbe writes, and I quote, Anything that we trust other than the Lord becomes our God, and therefore our idol. It may be our training, or experience, or job, or money, or friends, or possession, One of the best ways to find out whether we have idols in our lives is to ask ourselves this question. Where do I instinctively turn when I face a decision or I need to solve a problem? Do I reach for the phone to call a friend? Do we assure ourselves that we can handle the situation ourselves? Or do we turn to God? And see his will and receive his his help. Unquote. Isn't that good? That is the idea. 
Because even good things can become idols. And over and over again, I've repeated to you throughout this study in the book of Isaiah that the true God in your life is the thing that you occupy yourself with. It's what you wake up in the morning and you think about. It's what you live for during the day. It's when you put your head on the pillow and you go to sleep at night. The thing that floods you from beginning to end, the thing that preoccupies your affection and your sensibilities, almost certainly is your God. People addicted to idolatry and sorcery, according to the Bible, will face God's judgment. And sadly, they they will suffer four consequences. Number one, they'll become weary. And their souls will become burdened with a sense of emptiness and and hopelessness. They will rush here and there in an attempt to help others, but it's going to be fruitless and empty because they can't even help themselves. They will, number two, suffer deception. They'll forget the Lord and the fact that He judges sin, according to verse 11. And by placing their trust in idols, they reveal their true heart. That is, that they didn't really trust the Lord at all. And so when it says in verse 10, look what it says. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say, there's no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. Verse 11, and of whom have you been afraid or feared? That you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart. Is it not because I held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them, a breath will take them away. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And in a moment, I'm going to get to that particular end of verse 13 and tell you what it means. But the three things, you become weary, you suffer deception, you're exposed to to the, the, the sense that somehow false righteousness and works will get you to heaven. You become confident that you're faithful in your false religion, that somehow false worship, by keeping the rules and the regulations, by, by observing the ceremonies and the, and the rituals of the religion, that if you simply perform the demands of your religion, that's good enough. So the person who says, I'm a good person, I go to church, I satisfy the demands of my religion. Well, what are the demands of your religion? Well, if it's all, if it's Islam, you just have to you pray towards Mecca five times a day. You repeat the prayer that Allah is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. You make a hajj, a journey. You give to the poor. And that's it. You're pretty much okay. But here's the idea. God will expose their false righteousness and their works. They're nothing but filthy rags, he says in Isaiah 64, verse 6. And guess what? They'll be helpless when the crisis comes. When the crisis comes and when the judgment falls, 
Here is the one mark of false religion. It won't hold up under pressure. It won't hold up under pressure. And here's the idea of what the Bible is teaching. When the true judgment of God takes place, when the final curtain drops, and when Jesus Christ returns to the planet Earth, and when all human beings have to stand before Him, then all false religions and all idols will be seen for what they are. Helpless. Lifeless. They possess no power. They're a total failure. All man-made ideas will be totally unable to help them in the time of need. And the day is coming when judgment will come. The idols will be blown away by the breath of His power. And again, now look carefully at the end of the verse. But he who puts his trust in me. You should read it over and over again. And if you're a person who underlines your Bible, this is the one to underline. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. One of the really interesting things about having gone to Israel is we see the temple mount, the place, the holy mountain, the place of sacrifice, the place of worship. And again, it was typically on the highest point of the mountain. So what in the world does this mean? He who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. Remember what possessing the land is for the Christian. It means possessing the promise. It means occupying the territory that God has given you. And as a Christian, in occupying the land, it means occupying everything that is in Jesus. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, to everything that's written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the book of Acts, in Corinthians, in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, traveling through First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy and journeying all the way to the book of Revelation. It means occupying and possessing everything that God has for you in Christ. Here I think it means in part the gospel, the good news that God is offering. Now think about this. This is the offering and this is the good news. In Christ Jesus God is offering you everything. What do you mean by everything? I mean everything. Everything that you really need and everything that you really want. Because what you really need is the emptiness to be filled, for the fear to go away, for the forgiveness to take place, and for the certainty that you're going to spend eternity in heaven with God. Think carefully. God is offering you everything that you really want. Forgiveness, cleansing, hope, freedom, joy, life, abundant and eternal. And then look what it says in verse 14. And one shall say, keep it up, keep it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Now remember in the book of Isaiah, the imagery of a highway in the past has been, remember the children of Israel are going to be taken from Judah and Jerusalem. They're going to be taken to Babylon. They're going to find themselves by the river Euphrates. But God is going to make a way for them to go back to the land. 
He's going to remove the obstacles and he's going to create a highway in the wilderness so that they can go back to the land and occupy the promises. But I don't think that this is what that means. It isn't just a physical highway that returns the children of of the Lord. The passage can be translated, build up, build up, prepare the way. Here's what I think it means. God isn't constructing barriers or obstacles or traps or mountains or oceans. God isn't looking for a reason that you should stay away. Here's what I think Isaiah is saying. God has removed all of the barriers, all of the obstacles, all of the traps, everything. God God isn't looking for excuses to keep you away from your relationship with Him. And you might be thinking, well, what about the problem of my sin? The Bible says that we're sinners and that our sin has separated us from God. That is true. And God has made a provision for your sin. The Messiah. When this was written, it was He will come and He will remove the obstacles and the barriers. He will remove the obstacles and the barriers so that you have no excuse. You have no excuse. God isn't looking for excuses to keep you away, to keep you out of the relationship loop. Here's what He's saying. He's open to you. Think carefully. The Lord is saying and insisting that there's really no obstacles whatsoever for you to have anything other than a joyful, abundant life in Christ. If you accept the Messiah, if you accept the Messiah, if you embrace and accept the provision that God has given in the Messiah, God's way is open to you. Here's the point. The hang-up is not with God. God isn't in heaven going, if you do one... Look, if you'll just do this one thing. There's, there's just one last thing that I need you to do. Now, you'll remember from the New Testament that Jesus speaks to a religious leader. And remember, the religious leader asks Jesus, what must, Good Master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, I'm certain that he smiles. They said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. By the way, was Jesus good? He's the very definition of goodness. Was Jesus God? He had to have been in order for that to be true. And he said, hey, do you keep the commandments? You know, honor your mom and dad. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. And he said, since I was a kid, I've done all of these things. Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, didn't go liar. But he sensed that he wasn't completely honest. And Jesus said, there's one more thing I need you to do. I need you to sell everything that you have and give alms to the poor. One of the Gospels says, he said that, and it says, and looking at him, he loved him. Can you imagine? Looking at him, he loved him. And then he invites him on this adventure. This amazing, unbelievable, unprecedented adventure. Abandon everything and come and follow. 
follow me. And the Bible says some of the saddest words in all of the New Testament says that he went away sorrowful because he was rich indeed. He had an obstacle. The hang-up wasn't with God, though. It was with him. God isn't waiting for you to be a better person. God isn't waiting for you to get your head on straight. God isn't even waiting for you to quit drinking and quit drugging. And when you clean up your act, then you can come to Him. God's willing to accept you now. In your broken, wicked, flawed circumstance. But in our self-pity and in our unbelief, We treat God as if He's a a dead end rather than the goal. Now, I tried religion. I tried Christianity. I tried Jesus, but it just didn't work for me. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Guess what? The way is still open. The door is still open. God's removed the obstacles. God has torn down the barriers. You can come to Him on His terms. And that includes forgiveness of your sins. If you've ever wondered in your whole life, if you've ever wondered in your whole life, how can I find God? You should read the next verse. You should read it for yourself. And you should read it over and over again because this is the answer. Look what it says. For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Where is God? In two places. Look what it says. Read it for yourself. For thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place. Do you know where the high and the holy place is? It's the place where you can't go. You can't get there. As they say in Maine, from here. You can't get there from here. Because no matter how high you go, you'll never go high enough. If you go to the edge of our galaxy and then you go to the edge of the universe, you can't go high enough to find Him. No, it's by going lower and lower. Because it's the place of humility and and contrition. Look what it says. Where is God? And He dwells among the lowly and the contrite. You know what's interesting about that place? It's a place where you can go. Think about what it's saying. The way up is the way down. Isn't that interesting? Remember what Isaiah said at the beginning of of this book? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And this train filled the temple. But where was Isaiah when he saw all of this? When he was on his face looking straight down. The way to find God is obvious. Contrition. Humility. You see, the Lord isn't like you or me. 
the Lord hates pride. The Bible says he resists the proud in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. We live in a world where we will typically go to a neighborhood that we can afford. But where do you find God? By going higher and higher? No, it's by going lower and lower. It's the place of humility and contrition. And see, this is what's interesting. In direct proportion to your willingness, God will show up. Do you remember the story in the New Testament? How Jesus tells about a religious leader who comes and he prays. And he says, I thank God that I observe all of the rules and I give sacrifices and I tithe everything. And I'm not like this jerk next to me. A sinner, clearly a sinner. And remember the guy next to him was praying a prayer. Be merciful to me, God. A sinner, he's pounding his chest. Because he said, I am nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing. And the Bible says that one went went away justified and the other one condemned. Would it hurt to humble ourselves? For some of us, it's an impossibility, it seems. But I want to point something out in verse 15 that you may have never seen before. That it is in humility and contrition That's the place where you'll find God. So why wouldn't you go there? If God is what you're really looking for, if you're really seeking the Lord, if you really want to find the Lord, then why wouldn't you go to the place where you can find Him, to the low place? Do you remember the story in Luke 14, 7, the parable of the wedding feast? The guests make a beeline to the front table to the best seats, but the host tells them that this seat is reserved for others, and they're embarrassed, and so they they go, they 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 went to, to the back. But the people who were in the back were invited forward to the seat of honor. Jesus is in effect saying, when we come into the church, we should be thinking, where is the lowest place? Because that's where I belong. If God wants to honor me further, then God will move me up. And the high and the holy one has the the advantage of seeing all things clearly. How high is God? He's so high that he doesn't have a point of view. He only has points to view. He sees everything clearly, unmistakably. It's what Isaac was singing when when he was leading worship, that you know my thoughts, you know my deeds, you know my failures, you know what might even be considered an asset or a liability. You know everything. You see everything. You understand everything. And listen carefully. When he sees all points of view, he visits the lowly with revival. Are you willing to humble yourself before God? Are you willing to take the lowest point on the totem pole? Are you willing to admit your sin and abandon greed and selfishness and then seek only the place that God desires for you? Jonathan Edwards wrote, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. I like that. He also wrote, 
pure Christian humility disposes a person to take notice of everything that is good in others and to make the best of it and to diminish their failings. In other words, the place of humility is you search and search and search for what is right and what is good and you go to extraordinary efforts to cover that which isn't good. True humility isn't some abject, groveling, self-despising spirit, but it's a willingness to see yourself as God sees you. Someone once said, there was a man above me, and he was above me, until he had that thought. James wrote, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Peter said, clothe yourself with humility. A church filled with humble people, you know what, they, they becomes a church ready for revival. And then look what it says in verse 16, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would fail before me in the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness I was angry and struck him. I, I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. When it says... For I will not contend forever. The idea is, look, I'm not going to place myself in a position forever where I'm going to talk about these things. Nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would fail before me. The idea is, if anyone stood before God, can they really survive? The answer is no. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. Here's the idea. God hates greediness. And that's what covetousness is. Covetousness is simply wanting more and more of what you already have enough of. And God was enraged by their sinful greed and was constantly disciplining for, for it. But the children of Israel wouldn't change. Look what it says. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I told you to be humble. I don't want to be humble. I want to be proud. I told you not to be greedy, to be satisfied with what you have. I don't care. I want more. God hates greed. And look what it says in verse 18. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. There would come a day, a day, here's the idea, a day when the Lord would heal them and guide them and comfort them. That's the promise. There's going to come a day where you're going to be Led and restored and comforted. And in verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is afar off and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. Here, healing means to be made whole or well. And it's a wholeness and a wellness that relates not just simply to a physical way of living, but a spiritual condition or circumstance. So here's the idea. What if you're involved in spiritual adultery? What if you've been in that place where you weren't satisfied with God and you weren't satisfied with Jesus and you, you went looking for love in all the wrong places? God's willing to forgive you. He's willing to heal you. He's willing to restore you. That's what's being said. Jesus reminds us, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Paul said, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. I suspect that he had this particular passage in mind. Here's what it's saying. 
if and only a child of the 60s is going to understand what I'm about to say. If you stay low, you'll get high. That's the point. But look what it says in verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked can say, Salam, or Shalom, or Paz, or Peace. The unrighteous, the wicked, the unbeliever can repeat week after week, Peace be with you. But peace isn't within us. The wicked are by nature and by choice restless and never satisfied. That's what it means. They're always seeking and never finding. That's what Isaiah means when it says that they're like the sea. They're never content. They're never grateful. They're never relaxed. They're, they're always unwilling to accept God's verdict. That you can't have peace apart from the Prince of Peace. I want peace, but I don't want to have a right relationship with God in Christ. Sorry. Chuck Colson writes of a despairing young woman who is exhausted from an endless round of parties. And when a psychologist suggested, well, stop it. She said, you mean I don't have to do what I want to do? The idea being, she went for help, but she didn't really want to be helped. There are people who say, I want help, but they don't want to stop being disconnected. We strive. We rebel. Listen carefully. We strive and we rebel and we're disconnected because we are both by nature and by choice wicked. We need a Savior. Jesus doesn't just confront our wickedness. He doesn't just expose our wickedness. He confronts it he exposes it, but then he forgives it. He washes it and cleanses it and makes us acceptable. He forgives us. He opens the way back to God. He visits the lowly and the contrite. He revives their spirit. No wonder Jesus could say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember what peace is. It isn't just simply the absence of conflict. It's the settled circumstance of knowing that you have a right relationship with God in Christ. And that's when you can say peace. But I have to stop. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Lord, we thank you for both the promises and the warnings. Lord, we pray that we would embrace the promises and heed the warnings. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to go to the place where we can certainly find you. The place of contrition, the place of repentance, and the place of humility.
it's there we will find you. Because that's where you are. Waiting. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's...